Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Church. It is good to see you. Uh, I kind of feel like we should just go outside and enjoy the sunshine that we'll have for the best like hour and a half because what I've heard <clears throat> from my meteorological friends. <laughs> Why are you laughing already? It's, I don't even, you don't even know what I'm going to say and you're laughing, right? The rumor is this, right? Here's the rumor. That sometime mid to late afternoon, snow squalls. It's not me. It's what the Connecticut weather dog has told me. If you don't like that, talk to him. I mean, I cannot. We should literally go outside right now and just vitamin D surround me. Um, but thank you for giving up how you could have been spending a beautiful Sunday, sunny morning uh, to be here with us. If I've not met you, my name's Peter, and I'm one of the guys on staff. And if you're visiting, if you're new, uh, we'd love to know how we might serve you or walk with you. We're not going to chase you out your car with a fruitcake or anything, but we do want to know how can we <clears throat> answer questions, help you get connected, move along. And so at the different doors, we have a hard copy, a piece of paper. That's the bulletin. And there's a QR code. If you're digital, you can click that. It'll send you to a connect card where you can let us know how we can help you. If you prefer pen and paper, you can fill that out with your name and you know, click a few boxes or write some comments, and you can drop that in the offering box, and we'd love to... Uh, just serve you and be of any help <clears throat> that we might be able to be with you. A couple of announcements <clears throat> as we kick things off. We're kind of an exciting season with a lot's going on. And so two things I'd like to call your attention to. The first is the family meeting part two, right? Yes! If nothing else, you will have free donuts again. So, I mean, and they're good donuts. Family meeting part two, we kicked off a brand new vision here at Calvary Church a couple months ago, right? That what we feel God leading us to do and what we're striving to do is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth. And we rolled that out at our first family meeting and we talked about what does it mean to build a body? What does it mean to grow as disciples? And not only did we talk about it, but we gave some really clear, tangible action steps to say, if you want to be part of what God is leading us to do, here's how you're doing it. And your response has been remarkable. Uh, it's just been so encouraging to see so many of you energized and motivated and linking arms and serving and giving yourself and of your time. And, and we don't take that for granted and God doesn't take that for granted. But what we've said, and we're going to keep doing that, we will always be working to build our body. But uh, <clears throat> what we said is it's very easy for churches to stop there and become inwardly focused. And we don't want to stop there. We want to make sure we're caring for each other well and knowing each other well and richly doing life together, but we want to make sure that as disciples who are connected and loving each other, we're also reaching out to those around us with God's love and truth. And so on April 3rd, after this service, we're going to share a little bit about what does that look like? Like, what does that mean to personally and collectively reach and impact others with God's love and truth? We will uh, kind of do a soft launch of some ministry partnerships within a six-mile radius that we'll let you know some information about. We have a missions trip scheduled for this summer, if that's something that uh, interests you, a way for you to get more information. And then we're going to have some very easy and exciting ways for you to <clears throat> just be kind to your neighbors around Easter. Uh, we, we've got this, this thing that we're really excited about. As a I don't want to ruin it. We've got this thing that we're really excited about as a staff that a bunch of you, uh, if you're interested in grabbing that, a great way for you to just show a small but meaningful uh, token of love to some neighbors and families who are right around you uh, to let them know that we're here and that we care. And so we'll roll that out as well. So April 3rd, the family meeting, part two. 
about 60 to 70, well, about 60% of you on average are already here after this service. You're sticking around for discipleship classes. That's encouraging. 60% of the people who come in the morning are sticking around for classes or community groups. So you're already here. So just stick around again on April 3rd, grab some donuts, and if you don't typically stick around, I will invite you to come in here, because it, it really is exciting about how we're continuing to move forward and move ahead. Second thing I'd like to talk to you about is Good Friday. Um, the Good Friday services, we've done some things in the past, we've done only our stuff, we've done virtually, but let me tell you what we're going to do this year. There's um, <clears throat> a number of local pastors that I talk to regularly and, and hang out with, and we have some relationships, and we're all kind of talking about what are we, you know, what, what's your church doing Good Friday? Do we want to try this regional thing where we have like 21 churches? Maybe we're not ready for that, but, but this Good Friday, there's about seven or eight local churches who are going to combine to have one Good Friday service together. It's going to be at two o'clock. It's going to be here at Calvary. I suggested a neutral site, but... Um, but collaboratively, we're having it here, which is great. And it's, if you've come to the Good Friday services here before, it's not going to be like that. We're not going to have seven guys talking for 10 minutes and seven guys reading scripture. It's going to be a time that's pretty simple, but I think meaningful. We're going to have worship where each church is uh, offering a, a worship per person or two from their team. So it's going to be kind of this regional worship band uh, to lead us in worship. We're going to simply have different folks reading through the events that occurred on Good Friday. We're going to have a time of communion with a kind of a, a homily or a thought that surrounds that, and we're just going to be together. And so if that interests you, if you want to come with other brothers and sisters in the Lord and worship from, with people from other traditions on Good Friday, we'll be doing that here at Calvary at 2 o'clock on Good Friday. And I'm excited about it. And as we're planning it, you know, there's been so much disunity within local churches through the past two years. Uh, so many local churches have splintered into fractions over masks or vaxes or your political person or how to talk about racism, how to not talk about racism. And there's a lot of division in a lot of churches still. And we, as pastors who try to love and care about each other in the area, thought, man, wouldn't it just be great for Christians to get together and not divide over things that we shouldn't fight about, but worship over things that unite us together. And so that's what we're going to be doing on Good Friday here at 2 o'clock. And so we'd invite you to join us. And so with that, what we're going to be doing now is what we do every week, opening up a book of the Bible. That's what we do at Calvary if you're visiting. We 99% of the time open up a book of the Bible, and we go through it paragraph through paragraph, verse by verse. We've been in a series of Nehemiah, as you can tell by the graphic with the seagulls. I want to see seagulls. See the little seagulls? They look so happy and sunny and warm. I don't want to see any more polar bears or whatever's rolling around. All right, enough about the weather. We go through a book of the Bible, going through Nehemiah. Uh, throughout the summer, we're going to go through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then some standalones, and then we're excited because in the fall, we're going through the book of Revelation, not because we think the world is ending. Um, so no, seriously, some of you are like, oh my gosh, he thinks the rapture's coming. <laughs> I, I don't know if it is, but I don't necessarily think, I don't know. Okay. But this is what I thought. We've had the opportunity to go some, through really some practical books and learn some things. We're going to talk about Jesus after Easter. We're going to have a series going through five or six events after Jesus' resurrection that'll oftentimes never get talked about. So we're going to have some time to talk about Jesus. We've talked about Nehemiah's very practical, today's practical. And I thought, you know what? Man, as a church, 
It is good to sometimes dig into some doctrine. It is good to dig into some books that are overwhelming and make no sense and walk through them together to try to bring some sense to them. So that's what we're going to be doing in the fall, okay? But we're not there yet, and if the rapture doesn't come in the next two minutes, we're going to talk about the book of Nehemiah. So I will pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we're grateful for what you are doing in the body. Um, This is your church, and you are working. You are energizing. You are drawing people. You are... uh, bringing people. And so we're grateful for what you're doing. We want to be a group of people that is simply trying to keep our eyes on Jesus and follow him where he's leading us. We're grateful for the word that we can open up to hear from you and to learn from you. And so we do that again this morning, Father, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our midst as we open up your word. And we pray that as we remember Jesus' death uh, at the end of our service, that our Savior and our King will be honored well through our time. So Uh, Be with us now, Father. Thank you for the spirit that doesn't waste any of these words. And depending upon him and for the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, what we are going to talk about today in Nehemiah... Hey, there it goes. It started. I'm being kind to you. We got like 42 different clocks back there now, and I have no idea which one. I'll look. You all looked. I know which one to look at to make sure I'm not going very long. We will be done because I want to watch St. Peter's play in the final four or lead eight at like five o'clock tonight. So, man, by 422, you will be out of here. I promise, okay? Here's what we're going to do. Today, what we're going to talk about, it is an issue that I have faced countless times and an issue that is close to my heart is an issue that many of you have faced and weathered through and because of that is probably close to your heart. What we're going to talk about today may be the reason that some of you absolutely don't want to go to work tomorrow. It may be the reason that if you're a student on a little league team, hockey team, basketball team, you're like, I I just want my sports season to be over. It Maybe the topic that we're going to talk about, this thing, maybe the reason that in some of your marriages, you just feel so uncared for and unloved. It's something that as a child in your family, you may feel like, man, my, my parents, they're just wearing me out. They don't encourage me. This issue may cause you to feel not loved by your parents. This issue that we're going to talk about today may be what is making some of you be on the very cusp of walking away in an area in which you're leading. You're doing something, you've stepped up, you're leading, you face this issue and you're like, you know what, I'm done. Like, I'm out of here. This issue is something that seeps through the walls of churches and impacts groups of believers. This issue is something that way too many Christians experience from other Christians. And in some weird way, the more that you are doing exactly what it is that God wants you to do, the more that you're going to encounter and experience this issue. The issue that we're going to talk about today, right, is is undeserved criticism. Undeserved criticism. And I say undeserved because that is different than deserved criticism. There are times in life when I do things that are stupid, that are moronic, that are wrong, that, you know what, Uh, criticism is warranted. Criticism to help me realize a flaw that is brought in the appropriate way with the appropriate heart, right, is okay at times. If you take your car and on the way out of church today, drive into our building, it would be appropriate to criticize you for that decision, right? There are moments in life where... 
criticism is okay, that that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about when you do do something wrong and you need to be corrected and you need to be improved. What we're talking about is when you have done everything right. You have done things the way God wants you to do, what he's wanted you to do, how you've wanted to do, and people are critical of you for no justified reason. Have you ever experienced that? <clears throat> have you ever, you, you, you are doing everything properly. And there are people who are just shooting arrows at you for no justified reason. Do you know what that's like? Do you know the way it makes you feel? Well, if you haven't experienced that, one day you will experience that. That is something that I experience. It's something that you experience. It's something that we experience. And it's something that Nehemiah experienced a long time ago. We've seen snippets of this throughout our various chapters. We're, we're up to ver chapter 6 today in our study but in chapters 2 and chapters 4, right, even chapter 5 and 6, we've seen different snippets of criticism. Our text today is going to be Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 6. And here's what we're going to see as we walk through this. We're going to see three realities about undeserved criticism, one impact of undeserved criticism, and then two ways to respond to undeserved criticism. Three things that you can expect when you get undeserved criticism uh, one impact of it and two ways to respond to it. So here's, if you've not been with us, if you know nothing about this book or this guy, then here's a 45-second recap, which will probably be a two-minute recap. Uh, Nehemiah was a guy who was a Jew who was taken as a prisoner of war, who was serving in the enemy's cabinet in a high position as an advisor, as a cupbearer, and he learned of a need back in his hometown. He learned that the walls of Jerusalem that had been destroyed uh, by different invaders had not yet been rebuilt. And because of that, the people who lived in the city were in peril. There wasn't security, right? There was no normalcy. They were at risk. But more importantly, and I guess just as importantly, the worship of God was being hindered. There was a temple there where everybody was supposed to come to worship. It was the center of the Jewish people's worship. But because of all the risk involved in getting there, there were people like, I don't know about that. And so the, the, the temple wasn't thriving. Worship wasn't thriving. Nehemiah, a guy who was 700 plus miles away, heard about this. And when he heard about it, God grabbed at his heart. And he started tugging. And he started pulling. And he, he put this need and he planted this dream inside Nehemiah. And what we've said throughout this series is, that our hope is that through this series, God does that for some of us. That for some of us in a new way, in a unique way, man, we, we see a gap between the way God wants things and the way that things are, and we don't just see the gap, but we sense God drawing us and tugging us to stand in that gap and to take a step to try to fix that gap. That's what happened with Nehemiah. He couldn't shake it. So he spent some time realizing this is what God wanted him to do. Then he spent some time praying in silence alone, waiting to figure out how does God want me to do this. He took a step of faith, and, and throughout this process, what we've seen as he's right, started this building project. But right away, when he took his first public step of faith, he went to his boss, and he's like, boss, man, I, I want to go back and help my people. There's a big problem. I want to go back and help my people. And by the way, king... Here's all the things I need from you. I need some letters. I need some security. I need some stuff. And the king granted it all. And right away, when the king did that in chapter 2, we saw the first swipe 
of some criticism, of some opposition, of some opponents to this. And we read this, but we didn't spend some time in it. But here's what happened, right? The king gave Nehemiah this, this improbable and impossible granted his ask. And so Nehemiah's like, man, great. I'm going to start going to Jerusalem. I'm going to start to work on this. And then here's what in verse 10 of chapter 2 it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard of this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Ten verses into the second chapter, there's already these critics who are rising up, and we're going to see these dudes throughout pretty much the rest of the book. Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat, right, let's at least learn a little bit about these guys. Uh, Sanballat likely came from a town a few miles northwest of Jerusalem. There was a town called Beth Horans, and Sanballat, that was his stomping grounds. He, at some point in his life, according to history, became the governor of Samaria. Samaria was kind of this neighboring region to Jerusalem. He worked for the same king that Nehemiah worked for, and in the org chart of that kingdom, this guy was Nehemiah's boss. Interestingly, Tobiah was not uh, of a different nationality like Sambal. Tobiah was a Jew. And Tobiah was a Jew who was very connected in Jerusalem. And what uh, history and documents seem to suggest is in many ways he was kind of like the godfather of Jerusalem. There, there was things that were broken down and that brokenness and emptiness. Tobiah had found this way to make a living and to make some money and he was networked and he was connected and he needed things to stay oppressed and depressed so that he could thrive. And both of these guys, two chapters in, ten verses in, when they heard what Nehemiah had stepped up to do, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa we don't like this. That, that attitude continues in verse 19. Nehemiah's had this big vision casting moment. He's had the PowerPoint deck for all the people. He said, you've been at the family meeting. Let's go. Let's build the wall. The people are like, woohoo, let's build the wall. Hand me a hammer. And then in verse 19, when Sanballat of chapter 2, this doesn't have a slide, and the Hornite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king, their criticism continues and grows throughout the other chapters, and so we see a lot of it in chapter 4. And so I read for you chapter 3 in its entirety with a bunch of names that you are free to use to name your firstborn child. Amazing, beautiful, common names from chapter 3. I'm going to read to you chapter 4, and you're going to hear how this criticism peaks, and then we'll read some chapter 6, and then we'll pull some observations. So if you got a Bible... Open it up. If you've got a device, swipe it open. If you need a free Bible, we have a bunch out there. If you need a free iPhone, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Here is chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Now, and remember, chapter 3, this is important, uh, the, the work has begun. Chapter 3, which is one of my favorite sermons that I think I've preached because it's fascinating. Has there's so much practical stuff out of a list of random names. Nehemiah has gone around and told us how all the work is happening. So the work is going on. And chapter 4, now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, and he was greatly enraged, and he cheered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, <laughs> I just feel like he's got this whiny little voice. Yes, what they are, I won't do the voices for you. Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
That is ancient Near East trash talking, if you're ever <laughs> interested. Yeah, well, if a fox goes up, it's going to break your stone wall. Whatever. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt, this is Nehemiah talking, on their heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Verse 4, guess who we see again? But when Senbalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day of night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And then Nehemiah goes through this process where he puts people in different places along the wall to help be security guards. He puts kind of this private deputized security force at different places around the walls. And then he says this in verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. But we're not done with these guys who are opposing this. Verse, I mean, chapter 6, just a few Verses out of here, nine verses, chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. Now, so the, the building is continuing. Nehemiah is about to finish. That's what we're going to hear. Now, when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they, intended me to, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. If you want to hear a great sermon, there's a dude named Andy Stanley who preaches on this text. And he, he rocks that line, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Ah, that will preach. But I'm not going to preach it today. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, and this is what these guys are saying. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you were building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now, come, let's take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, this is Nehemiah, no such things as you, have been, no such things as you say have been done, for you were inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Lots of words that I just read, but what principles can we see? What do we pull from that, right? What, what does this true story teach you and me about undeserved criticism when we're stepping up to do exactly what it is God is leading us to do? Well, the first thing has to do with when Nehemiah faced criticism. 
Nehemiah faced criticism at three different kind of pivotal moments in this project. He faced criticism right out of the gates. He stepped up. He took a step of faith. It was granted to him. Boom. The criticism came. He faced criticism in the middle of the project. He had just gotten all these people unified. They're all working. They're all engaging. They're all pouring into it. Boom. Criticism comes. And... When this impossible task was days away from being completed, this thing that people, nobody thought they could do, they did it in a record amount of time, this rebuilding of the walls. When there was about to be success and celebration and woohoo, we did it, this is great, criticism showed up. Three different moments in the story, in the beginning when there's initial success, in the middle when things are going well, and at the end when there's about to be a celebration of what God has done through the people, criticism and critics and opponents and opposition rears its ugly head. Here's the first reality about undeserved criticism. You can expect criticism at different moments. I know, I know, right? It's like, seriously? That's the best you got? I don't know. So far it is. You, you can expect criticism <clears throat> at different moments. And I think this is important for you and for me and for us because, like I said, there are, we are in a great season of our church because there are so many of you who are putting sweat equity into this thing, and you're in it. You're helping us dream. You're helping us build. You're helping us collaborate. You're using your ideas. You're using your talents. Some of you, I know, have stepped up in ways, and we'll celebrate that at the family meeting, to lead, and you were a little intimidated, but you're seeing some fruit of it. And I'm just telling you, get ready for some criticism. Get ready for some opposition. Because undeserved criticism seems to seep through walls of churches. Hopefully this sermon for some of us will give us some tools to use when we face this. But listen, for all of us, it should be this rallying cry. Let's not be the people who give undeserved criticism. Let's have this church be the exception to the rule that undeserved criticism seems to seep through the walls of churches. That may be true in other churches. Let's not make that true in this church. Don't be that critic. Don't be that person. We don't need your criticism. We need you finding a place on the wall, grabbing a hammer, and helping us build into what God is doing us and asking us to do. And for those of you who, where you've stepped up and as you've stepped up, it's interesting, right? You see this all throughout the Bible. When there is this mountaintop moment, when Nehemiah is walking out on his first steps to Jerusalem, he's in his Toyota 4Runner with the sunroof open, with the rusty bumper, like, yes, I have this money, I have these supplies, I can't believe the king answered it, and it was success, boom. When all these people are working, there's success, boom. When they're about to celebrate success, boom. Throughout the scripture, when there are spiritual mountaintop moments, Moments when things are great, 99% of the time, there comes this valley of criticism, of discouragement, of depression, of just like, ugh. Criticism comes at different moments, and many times the moments after which it comes are moments of great success, where God has worked in great ways, which is instantly followed up by some criticism. And that's true for Nehemiah, that's true for us, and, and something else we read in this passage that's true that Nehemiah 
experience. And, and what we've read a few times out of this that Nehemiah experienced is, is kind of like fruit flies. Have you ever had a fruit fly in your house? Here's what happens with fruit flies. You have your little bowl of apples and bananas and nectarines or whatever you like, right? And all of a sudden, you're walking to get your coffee, and one day, and you just see this little, just this little, right? And you're like, huh, could it be dust, could be a fly, I don't know, but you're busy. You got to get your coffee. You fill your coffee up. You come back from work, and you walk back past that, and all of a sudden, it is like, right? It's like, what is going on? There was one group when I went, and like, these things are like guppies. They've reproduced in four hours, right? There is never, and then you got to like get your vinegar, wine, or whatever you Google with the pling and the plastic to try to catch them. I don't know if that works or not, but because I've never had fruit flies, because we have a very clean house. <laughs> but some of you are slobs. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? But, but here's the remarkable thing about fruit flies. It starts with one. Pew. 20 minutes later, there's 101. <laughs> and the same exact thing is true of critics. They're like fruit flies. They're like fruit flies. Look, look at Nehemiah, how the number of critics grows. Verse 2, I mean, chapter 2, verse 10, you can pop it up here. There were just these dudes, Sanbalt and Tobiah. But in chapter 4, verse 2, they've started to become some fruit flies, right? They've multiplied because here, here's what's really interesting. What Sanballat starts doing in this chapter is he starts letting other people know his frustrations. Sanballat and Tobiah have some concerns, frustrations. Then Sanballat... Man, he starts yapping about it, right? And he, being Sambalat, said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, gets a lot of people around him. And he starts engaging, bringing them into the criticism. What do these feeble Jews do? He's, he's rallying people around him and he's sharing to those people that he's rallied there his criticism. And he's trying to draw other people into his frustration and his anger and get recruit allies. He's being public. He's purposefully being vocal and making sure that other people know about what Sambal thinks is wrong. Have you ever had that happen before? I have. One fruit fly has some criticism. And they want to make sure that, that, that it's, they want to make sure it's not just them. So they talk as loudly as they can to as many people as they can. I cannot believe that Calvary doesn't have a logo on their coffee cup. They go, nobody's ever said that. That's why I can use it. But now some of you are thinking like, yeah, they should have a logo, it, right? And they don't just say that in their car going home. You know what they do? They go into the coffee area. And when there's a lot of people around, you know what they do? They pick up a coffee cup and they say, huh. And somebody next to them says, what's wrong? And they say, I can't believe Calvary doesn't have a logo on their coffee cup, right? Wanting other people to hear. And the next thing we know, the crowd is spread and a few verses down. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah. Look what happens. Now we got fruit flies everywhere. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdites, critics everywhere. Because one guy wanted everybody to know and rallied a bunch of critics to his cause and they grew like fruit flies. Here's the second reality about undeserved criticism. Critics often recruit and gather 
other critics. Critics often <clears throat> recruit and gather other critics. Critics love to run with critics. Birds of a feather. Ah, oh, you're so spiritually mature. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, what I have said since the first day that I came to this place is, look, this doesn't mean there are going to be moments when you don't like what I do, when you don't like what other leaders do, where you wish we had logos on the coffee cup. That is fine. And in those moments, what we said from day one is, come talk to us. Come talk to us. Because when you come and bring your question, your suggestion, or your frustration, or what may be constructive criticism, a few different things can happen, right? We can say to ourselves like, oh, that's really good. We made a mistake. We should fix it. We can explain to you why we did it, and you can be like, oh, that makes sense. We can agree to disagree, or you decide Calvary's not the place for you, right? But three of those four options are great options, but we never have that chance. You've never this, is not, this is not saying don't voice concerns. This is saying the way Sanballa did it wasn't the right way to do it to try to rally other people with him, publicly letting it known so that critics run with other critics, man, that's a reality, but that is not something that is helpful. And, and what's so interesting about now with those swarming fruit flies of critics that Nehemiah is facing, what's so hard about it is the content <clears throat> of their criticism, the content of their undeserved criticism. What is it that those critics are accusing Nehemiah of? What are they saying? What are they suggesting? What are they implying? What are they spreading? Verse chapter 2, we see a little bit of it. Verse 19, this is what they said, right? This is the criticism. This is what they say. What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Right? And then it continues later on. We read this and we see this theme in six, right? This is again, Sam Ballett, they went out and they wrote this little like anonymous letter. It's another one, but we won't talk about anonymous letters or anonymous emails. That's a story for another day, right? But this is what they put in there the content. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says, oh, I love that too, right? I, here's one thing, right? This is my pet peeve. If you have a criticism, right? Don't come to the person and say, all these other people are saying, uh-uh. If you come to me and say, I just want to tell you, all these other people are talking to me about the coffee cups of Calvary, this is what I will say to you. This is actually good because I don't have any criticism right now that I know of, right? But this is what I'll say. Uh-uh. I don't care what all the other people are saying because they're not here. How, what, what's your frustration? How can I help you? But many times what critics do is also talk about all these anonymous people. All these random people out there, right? Well, it's reported that you and the Jews intend to rebel. And according to these reports, again, anonymous reports, all these people are saying that you wish to be their king. No. Nehemiah wasn't trying to be their king. Nehemiah wasn't trying to rebel, right? And what's interesting is that none of those accusations are true. None of what is the content of the criticism is true, and yet each of the content of the criticisms is going right towards Nehemiah's integrity, right towards his intent, right towards his motive, right towards his heart, and it's not true. Nehemiah isn't trying to rebel against the king. Nehemiah is doing this with the blessing of the king. But what the critics are saying is they're casting all these false 
accusations about Nehemiah's heart, <clears throat> about his motives, about his intent. And, and here's the third reality. If you've never encountered this, probably, perhaps, one day you will. Criticism also includes false accusations about your motives and your heart. Many times, the criticism really isn't about, it, it expands beyond there's no logo on the coffee mug to you just want to destroy the church. Or you're just trying to destroy this baseball team. Or you're just trying to teach your students to be Satanists. It's not true. And many times that is what makes undeserved criticism so hard. When a teacher, when a parent, when a coach, when a leader is making an objective decision to have blue chairs and not purple chairs, and the criticism that comes has ultimately nothing to do with the color of the chairs, but false accusations about the leader's heart and the leader's motives. Three things that were true for Nehemiah about undeserved criticism, and if you've ever faced it, there may be some common bonds for you. How does this make people feel when you receive undeserved criticism, when you're doing what God wants you to do, how God wants you? Now, can all of us do what we think God wants us to do, how we want to do it better? Of course we can. We can always improve, but when we're seeking to pursue God the way that he wants and where the criticism we get is not deserved and is not true, how does that make you feel? How does that make us feel? Well, how did it make the people in that moment feel? The Jews at this point, they had weathered these guys around there, jeering them, mocking them, trying to stop them, trying to threaten them, trying to discourage them. The, the Jews had weathered all of that, all of that opposition, all of that criticism. And look how those things impacted them. Chapter 4, verse 10, this is what they say. They reached this point after Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites had just keep piling it and piling it and piling. They say, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, right? There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we won't be able to rebuild the wall. These guys have had now different moments of criticism and they're they're discouraged, they've lost their vision, they've lost their heart, they, they, they've lost, man, a sense of confidence to do this. They're scared, they're tired, they're worn out, and they want to quit. They want to quit. Like, you know what? I'm done. And maybe some of you were there six months ago in something, in your sports team, in your family, trying to help be a child who's living in a godly way, honoring your parents, but you just keep getting this criticism, and criticism is not deserved. As a parent who's stepping up to try to shepherd your child and put boundaries and put limitations and to teach them, and they're just rebelling, and you're discouraged. As a coach with your students, as a teacher in your school in your company, in your business, wherever it is, right? Maybe six months ago you reached a place or maybe six days ago you reached a place where you're like, I can only take so much criticism. I'm done. I want to quit. Because what needs to be done, 
it's going to take too much effort and I can't do it and I don't want to do it and I don't have the energy to do it and I have the strength to do it. It's never going to get done and it's not worth it. Maybe you felt that six months ago. Maybe you felt that <clears throat> six days ago. Maybe in six weeks that's what you're going to feel. But over time, what undeserved criticism does is it often causes discouragement and a desire to quit. It often causes discouragement and a desire to quit. Have you ever been there? Have you ever quit and walked away because the discouragement got so hard, right? Many times, like I started the sermon by saying, we face discouragement when we're doing the exact thing that God wants us to do. Many times we face discouragement right after success where we've stepped up to serve or stepped up to lead or things are going well and God is blessing and then boom. Discouragement and opposition and criticism, right? It's a tool of the enemy to try to get you and me and we to stop walking down the path that God wants us to walk on. It often causes discouragement and a desire to quit. And when you're leading, as you're leading, and every single one of us in this room is a leader because leadership is about influence, and every single one of you have influence somewhere. As a student, you've got influence in your classroom. As a teacher, you've got influence on the students. As a parent, you've got influence, right? As a child, you have influence. Every single one of us has influence. Every single one of us is a leader. And as a leader, you're going to face undeserved criticism. And when you face undeserved criticism, those critics are going to attract other critics, and the undeserved criticism at times is going to involve false accusations about your heart, about your motive, and about your intent. And when you face all of that as a leader, where you are in your story, you're going to want to say, I'm done. I'm done. Here's this quote by a guy named James Oswald Sanders, who kind of written this uh, <clears throat> keynote foundational book on leadership in a spiritual context. He says, no leader is exempt from criticism. And his humility will nowhere be seen more clearly than in the manner in which he accepts and he reacts to it. And his humility will nowhere be seen more clearly than in the manner in which he accepts and he reacts to it. So that raises the question, how do we react to it? How do we accept it? How do we deal with it? How do we navigate it? What does God want you to do when you receive undeserved criticism? Well, Nehemiah gives a great illustration. Nehemiah did two things, and within those two things, there's some things that he didn't do. In verse 4, uh, chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 4, he, he's getting this deal, right? Tobiah is talking this trash about, yeah, if a fox goes up, he's going to break their stone wall. And then in verse 4 of chapter 4, here's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Then when we flip down to 6, 9, right, he, we, he, again, ongoing criticism, and look what Nehemiah does. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. The first thing Nehemiah does when he receives this criticism, you know what he does? He prays. And, and both of those, <clears throat> that is not a long prayer. That is not a 45-minute, let me get in my car and go to Vermont in the mountains prayer. That is, man, I'm getting these arrows shot at me. And God, will you strengthen my hands? Oh, God, please help me. Hear, oh, God. Two quick prayers that Nehemiah fires off in the moment. The first thing he does when he gets that criticism, he prays. 
He prays, okay, God, help me. And that was his prayer. God, help me. What else does Nehemiah do? Well, we see it in chapter, uh, verse 6 of uh, chapter 4, right? I love this. He's prayed, and then I love this. You know what he does? The next sentence, the next paragraph, you can see it well in your Bible. It says this, so we built the wall. I love that. I love that. Because he didn't quit. He didn't quit. He said, God, I know you've called me to this work. And as part of your call on my life to this work is the undeserved criticism that comes with it. Some of you need to understand that. I tell that to younger pastors a lot. What you're doing is the work to which God has called you to. And part of the work and what is involved and what comes along with the work to which God has called you is this undeserved criticism. That is within the call, and you need to keep walking through it. Nehemiah's like, man, they keep coming at me. They keep discouraging me. God helped me, so we built the wall. He pressed on. He didn't quit. He didn't stop. He didn't walk away. He didn't say, you know what? When I was over there in the palace, people were feeding me peeled grapes and I could go swimming, and I'm here with these knuckleheads working at this stupid wall. I'm going back to the king's summer house and work on my suntan. He, he's like, man, we're going to keep going because this is the work to which God has called me. We built the wall. I'm doing a good work, and I won't come down. The second way to respond, pray and press on. Pray and press on. And just as important in this, it's important to see the things that Nehemiah didn't do, right? What he did, prayed, and he pressed on. But there's a lot of things that he didn't do. A couple of quick three or four things. You know what he didn't do? He didn't retaliate or fight back. He didn't retaliate or fight back. Um, I've had labs and golden retrievers throughout my life, and a different one of them's right, when they're in this playful mood, when they're playful, not when the Doberman's about to, like, eat your jugular, okay? But when these sweet little labs are playing, right, some of the dogs I've had will do this little thing. They're tugging on the thing, and we're playing tug-of-war, and I'll go, arr, and they'll go, arr, I don't, I don't know what we're doing, like, arr, arr, right? but it's playful. They're not going to bite me, like, they pull it, arr. Yeah. man, right, when, when, when the little puppy goes, arr, I go, arr, back, and many times that's what we do with criticism. Somebody lobs a criticism up to us, arr, you know what we do, arr. right, many times what you and I do, our first reaction when we're criticized is to fight back. They lob a personal attack, I'm going to show them, I'm going to lob a personal attack right back. We throw it right back. That never brings resolution. Never. Never. I'll buy you a Starbucks or Dunkin' cup of coffee if you prove me one time it doesn't. Typically, the only thing that brings is escalation. And we can wear ourselves out trying to retaliate, trying to get even trying to fight every critic one at a time and trying to control the situation. That's what some of you do. You face undeserved criticism and you're like, and then you spend all your energy trying to fight every critic and control the situation and it's not positive. 
Are there times when it's necessary to defend your reputation and speak truth? Absolutely. But there's very few times when it's appropriate to retaliate and to lob undeserved criticism back into the face of the person. We need to be like Nehemiah and trust God with it. I've read these verses to you before, but here's what I'd put out for you. If somebody's going to come and bring something they don't like about you or criticize you, then you need to write these two verses down or take a photo of these. Here's the first one. It's out of 2 Timothy 2. Both, interestingly, both of these, a church planter named Paul wrote to two younger pastors. This is a seasoned church planter telling younger pastors what they're supposed to do when they face criticism. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels. Maybe some of you need to think about this before you post anything on Facebook. And I'm not being funny. What if any time you were about to put something on Facebook about something, you thought to yourself, the Lord's servant should have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. Ugh. Why can't I say the Lord's servant must devour everybody like scorched earth? I could do that. Got to be kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Not retaliating, kind, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And the next thing in Titus to another young pastor says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about this. In other words, don't let your response to somebody give them ammunition to feed what they're already accusing you of. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't get involved in stupid controversies. Be kind, be gentle, don't retaliate. Next thing Nehemiah didn't do, and we're almost done, he didn't internalize it. He didn't dwell on it. He took it to God. He left it with God, and he pressed on. And for those of you who are people pleasers, the worst thing you can ever get is criticism, and even worse than that is undeserved criticism. And some of you bottle it up and you let it eat inside you and it just drives you crazy because it's not fair, it's not right, you don't deserve it. Yeah, you're right. But you know what? There's very little you can do about it. You need to leave it with God. I love what Max Lucado says about anxiety as a pastor and he uses this illustration of leaving things at your mechanic. Well, I know about mechanics because all my cars are like 25 years old. (laughs) But when you go to your mechanic, what do you do? Oh, you guys all have nice cars. You apparently don't use mechanics. Here's what you do. You say, bro, here's the key. And then you have your buddy who drove you there drive you home. This is what you do not do. You do not then get a sleeping bag and sleep on the floor of the garage and watch him fix the car. You're like, man, I'm going to leave it with you. You do it. And I'm going back. And some of us need to do that with God and don't internalize this and don't dwell on it and don't put a sleeping bag next to the unfair criticism and just sleep there, leave it with him and keep pressing on. He didn't involve others and he didn't quit. He didn't quit. What he did is he prayed and he pressed on. You're going to face it one day, someday. And I hope when you do, maybe some of the realities of what Nehemiah did will encourage you and will help you process it in the way that God wants you to, which 
will help you instead of ways that God doesn't want you to, which will only make it worse for you. And you know, a lot of the criticism, and I'll ask the worship team to come up here, um, a lot of criticism that we reserve, receive in life ultimately is over kind of silly things. A lot of the things that you are criticized for that you don't deserve or in churches, the criticism, it's about many times things that are just kind of trivial and kind of preferential. And ultimately, in the scope of eternity, in the scope of life, things that are just unimportant. And so one way that you and me and we can guard ourselves from letting trivial, unimportant things become sources of criticism for us is to continually remind ourselves of the important, foundational, core, theological, never-changing, most important truth that unites you and me together. The more we think about all the things that we don't have in common and all the things that aren't how we'd like it and all the things that are different, the more we're going to be divided. The more we think about what we have in common and what unites us, the easier it will be to not even get bent out of shape about whether there's a logo on a coffee cup or not. Because, man, we have the opportunity to worship, uh, drink coffee and worship together with brothers and sisters in Jesus. What unites you and me together, whether you like coffee or tea, whether you like blue chairs or not, whether you like pipe organs or piccolos, I don't even know if piccolo is an instrument, is Jesus. You and I are united by Jesus. We are bonded together by Jesus. And so together now as a body, what I'd love for us to do is to end a sermon on groups of people who were divided by criticism, to think about something that will help preserve our unity and unite our unity, which is the death of Jesus for all of us. If, you, if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you came in here and you're like, I don't even know about this God thing, man, then, then we don't want you to feel any pressure to participate. You shouldn't participate because this is something for those of us who believe something, a way that we remember what we believe. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And we're all equal in our sin, and we're all equal in the need of a Savior to save us from the sin. And we all have one Savior who died one death for all time for all people that unites us together. Let's be a church that rallies around what unites us instead of the enemy speaking lies into our head about everything that could divide us. And let's remember what unites us by remembering Jesus if you would, if you'd pull off the top layer of this and take the bread, which represents the one body of Jesus. The one body of Jesus which was shed for everybody to build a body. And as a body of believers united by Jesus, let's take and eat in remembrance of him. And then, you know, criticism often brings up <clears throat> things we've done wrong. But the amazing thing is if you're a Christian, you have been completely forgiven of everything that you've done wrong. 
And when the enemy comes to try to shame you, when the enemy comes to try to condemn you, when the enemy comes to try to criticize you because of what you did in the past or what you were in the past, you have the blood of Jesus, which was sacrificed once for all for every sin. And you're forgiven. And you're free. And you're not guilty anymore. And as a group of people who don't carry shame and don't carry guilt and don't carry condemnation, we're united in that one forgiveness by our one Savior from our one King. And so let's drink the cup together.